Amen. Please bow with me. As we go to the Lord before we hear from Him in His Word. Heavenly Father, we, we come to Your Word now seeking to, to learn from such a thing that is reaching all over Scripture, pulling on various threads and connecting them and seeing what beautiful work You have wrought in the writing of the Word and in the writing of history. That things shadowed at the beginning come into full color beautifully in Christ. Lord, we need Your help. We pray that You would illumine Your Word. Open our ears. Open our eyes. Open our hearts. And above all, that we would come from this in greater awe of our Savior and greater love for our King. We praise You in Jesus' name. Amen. The sermon is more topical, which means... Romans 5.14 is there really just to tell you kind of what we're doing. So let's, let's look at it. We're not going to be here long for now. But having in the back of our minds what Caleb preached last week about thinking of Advent, thinking of the coming of Christ, and Genesis 3.15 being that first promise of the seed of the woman to come, and this instilling a yearning for the advent, the coming of this one who would crush the head of the serpent and undo what was done in the curse and restore to us what is lost in Adam. To get a a greater idea of the content of this promise, we're reflecting today on the nature of Adam, who he was and what he was to do, what his role was, to give us greater illumination on what Christ does. That's the plan. And looking at Romans 5.14, we see the language, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. That word type gives us an idea that Adam, he's, he's meant to see as bigger than just himself. There's something going on in him that points outside of him. We see that in Adam, we get a taste of what Christ is like. We get a fuzzy image of what Christ will do and who He is. He foreshadows Christ. And for us to better understand, again, who Christ is and what He's done, a lot of our time this morning is going to be spent trying to understand who Adam was and what he was to be doing. And seeing that the failures of Adam point to the successes of Christ. So, um, just to give you an idea of where we're going. Adam is the federal head of all humanity. Christ is the federal head of a new humanity. And just as Adam, or as, as Christ is the perfect prophet, priest, and king of the new humanity... We're going to go through and hopefully see this morning that Adam is a fallen and imperfect prophet, priest, and king of all of humanity. And again, his failures are going to highlight Christ's triumphs and Christ's successes. Our outline for this morning, just to give you an idea of the skeleton of what we're doing. 
We're going to look at Adam's responsibility as Adam as federal head, his responsibilities as federal head for all of humanity. Then we're going to see Adam's failures as that federal head for all of humanity. Then we're going to look at Christ, the true and better Adam, and how he takes what Adam should have been and fulfills it perfectly and completely. Then, Lord willing, we're going to make application to understand what does this mean for me here and now as we do sing of Advent, celebrating Christ's first Advent, but we're also singing with a yearning for Christ's second Advent. And what do these things mean as we are waiting for that second Advent? So, to begin, we're looking at understanding Adam's role as federal head, and especially Adam's threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. And this might strike you as strange as we consider his role as prophet, but if we go back to Genesis 2, I think it's most clear in Genesis 2. Starting in verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. One interesting thing we gloss over is Adam was not formed in the garden. He's formed outside of the garden. Sort of, it might be crass, but plucked up and then dropped in the garden to work it. He planted them in the east And there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life that was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I started too early. I meant to go to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that... In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And what you see here is Adam is the first man formed, and the covenant is given to him. The word of the Lord, so to speak, is given to him. Implying, I think necessarily, that as Eve is created, Adam was meant to communicate these things to Eve. And then as they were to have children, Adam was to communicate these things to their children. And so that through Adam, every other human being would look to him as their prophet to say, this is who God is. This is what he's required, and this is what he's offering to us. And that we were to learn all of these things from him. I saw a post this week that I think can help us think about this. You know... The two times you can, you're guaranteed to see History Channel specials or New York Times articles about Christ is, you know, this time of year and, you know, spring around Easter because the secular world's going to want to weigh in and say, you know, this is ridiculous and these are the reasons why and whatever. But there was a good reminder in this post that one of the things that people pick on is the similarities between what we find in the Bible and other ancient religions. And what he was picking on especially was a virgin birth mythology how this is pretty rampant throughout many religions. And the charge then is, well, the Bible's a later text than, say, the Babylonian writings. And so it's not from God. It's copying these things. And so it's you shouldn't trust it. But if we do trust the Bible, and we do take it seriously, it explains why we see this. Consider 
we, those, those wonderful genealogies <laughs> that we want to just brush through and blow through, if we take them seriously, yes, even them seriously, then Adam would have lived long enough to see Methuselah. Methuselah was Noah's grandfather. Meaning, even those on the ark could have had, at worst, secondhand knowledge of everything that transpired in the garden. They would have been told from people that knew the guy who was there that this is what happened in the garden. And with Canaan, all these Canaanite religions that have these similarities with what we see in the Bible, Canaan is Noah's grandson. Wonder where he got the idea of virgin births having religious significance. And the idea of what we see in the Babylonian account of creation and even the flood. What's even striking about this is we, it's written for us. Noah lived 350 years after the flood. He was around for quite a while to continue sharing what he had learned. And I would say from the prophet Adam. By the time Abraham was born, Noah would have been dead, if my math is good, for only, you know, less than 100 years. And Shem would have still been alive for a while after. In fact, this is, I don't know how much I'm going to run with this, but there are some Jews that think Melchizedek, everyone wants to argue about who Melchizedek is. Some Jews think that it's Shem, that Melchizedek is Shem himself. Now, I, I, don't, I wouldn't die on the hill, I don't know. But what's interesting is there's no doubt he's alive at this time, Shem, who knew Noah, who would have been taught pretty directly what Adam would have taught. And what I'm saying to you this morning is that Adam's role as prophet would have been to communicate what God has revealed about himself to his posterity. He would have had a long time to do it if we take the Bible seriously. So, with that also, it's not much of a, not much of a stretch to think that Canaan and the seed of Ham and all this that don't love the Lord, for them to distort details and for that to pass down through Canaan's descendants into their own religions. Adam, as prophet, was to communicate again who God is, what He requires, what He is offering. He's the mouthpiece of God to every other human being, ideally. Adam is priest. This might also strike us as strange, but I think this is even more explicit. And there are four things here I want to point out that help us to see Adam as a first priest. First is that we see generally the Lord selects mountains for His abode. And there's very explicit language where I will dwell on mountains. Um, We see that Eden is spoken of as a temple on the mountain of God, explicitly, in the prophet Ezekiel. And we're going to go through these. I'm just giving you the highlight right now. We see that the dwelling place of God, the tabernacle slash temple, is where God walks among His people, which becomes significant when you think about Genesis 3.8, where God walked in, in the garden of the cool of the day. Then you see Adam is described as having the priestly function to keep or guard the dwelling place of God, which is the explicit language used of the priests who were to keep and guard the tabernacle and the temple. And the real quick version of this argument is that the first people who got this, remember Moses wrote the first five books. The original audience for those reading Genesis would have had all the Levitical 
uh, rites, would have had knowledge of what a priest was and what a priest was supposed to do, would have had a knowledge of what a tabernacle is and what that is. And the, uh, the argument would be that for these people that would have all that background knowledge and they hear about Adam, they would say, oh, he's a priest. And he's doing priestly things. So, backing up. Just to throw out some Scriptures for you, as far as the Lord selects a mountain for His abode, you see this in Exodus fifteen seventeen. This is after they're delivered from uh, the chariots of Pharaoh in the Red Sea. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. So you see this language that where God abides, where uh, He is dwelling in a more... Uh, in a more approachable sense, is on the mountain that he's choosing. And in this case, it's Mount Zion. Point looking forward to that when they come into the land of Canaan. Ezekiel 40, verse 2, and Ezekiel 43, verse 12, are looking forward to an eschatological temple, and it's on a mountain too. You're seeing these things are paired together. There's mountains that the Lord has chosen, and there's the temple that represents where he dwells in a special way. This is why, turn with me to Ezekiel 28, so we can see this together. When we look at Ezekiel 28, this should really open our minds to this idea that Adam was a priest. We may often think of this, and rightly so, as a text that talks about the devil and his nature. But there's more going on here than that. We're starting in verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Here, verse 13, You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. So here, like we see in other places in Scripture, mountain, uh, Special dwelling place of God, garden of God, temple of God. These things are all brought together. Which adds to this picture that the Garden of Eden is a prototype, a first temple. And Adam is there as its priest. Again, just as building on this, the idea of God dwelling where he dwells and where he walks. In Leviticus 26, 11 through 12 we read, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. The idea being where his dwelling is, where he walks among his people, this is the place of his special presence represented in the tabernacle and the temple. Uh, Deuteronomy 23, verse 14, Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy so that you may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. And again, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, written by Moses, as well as Genesis, written by Moses. And again, I 
I really think the first people that would have read Genesis when they hear God's walking in the garden in the cool of the day, their minds would be triggered by what they... Well, He walks in the, among us in the tabernacle. He walks among us in the temple. This is saying something about who Adam is and what was there in the garden. And finally, not just that the garden is a temple, but that Adam is its priest. We see this language of keeping and guarding in the dwelling place of God. Genesis 2.15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. I've got a few texts to look at, but Numbers 3 is where we're going to start. Numbers 3, 6-8. Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard, and there's our phrase in question, they shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the temple of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And so just as these priests are meant to guard the holy place and the things affiliated with the holy place, the language in Genesis 2 evokes that kind of idea for those that are familiar with the Levitical system. But just as the priests are guarding the holy place, Adam was to guard the Garden of Eden, the Garden Holy Place. You see the same language in Numbers 18, verses 6 through 7. You see this language picked up on in 1 Chronicles 23, verse 32. Thus they were to keep charge of the tent of meeting and the sanctuary and to attend the sons of Aaron, their brothers, for their service of the house of the Lord. Keep charge to guard, tend, and keep. This is all similar language. And so Adam as priest... He's meant to guard the holy place of God and to keep out corruption. And as we're going to see in a little bit, he will have an opportunity to be a mediator, and he's going to fail at that. Adam as king is probably the least controversial and most explicit, right? Because Genesis 1, looking at verses 26 through 28, imagine this language. God says, let there be light, and there is light. Let there be is creative language, and it happens. And the same language is used, let, their, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let them have dominion. Adam and Eve were meant to be unrivaled, unopposed kings of create, king and queen of creation. Um, and this is not our experience. We don't even have to think for a few moments to recognize that creation does not submit to our will. You ever tried to plant a garden? You know it doesn't submit to your will. You have any animal that you keep in your house or outside your house, you know it does not just freely submit itself to your will. But this is not the way it was created to be. Adam and Eve were given this kind of dominion at the very beginning. They were meant to rule over creation. And so we can ask this question with all these things in the back of our minds. What should have happened in the garden? We know what happened. And what happened is not what should have happened, but what should have happened. Adam, and this language may strike you, but he is the first sinless son of God. Luke 3, the end of the genealogy, refers to Adam as the son of God. Adam, the first sinless son of God, should have taught all his posterity the covenant of God with its blessings and stipulations as prophet. Adam, as priest, should have kept the garden temple free of corruption and cultivated its expansion throughout the world. We know Adam is not made in the garden. 
He's made outside the garden, plucked up, and dropped in the garden, which means the garden is not all-encompassing on the earth, and it was to be expanded. Adam as king was to reign over the world as the garden temple would expand to encompass the world. And when he completed that work, what would have happened? I think to answer this question, we ask ourselves, why does God rest before the fall? Why does God work six days and rest on the seventh prior to a fall, prior to the curse of the drudgery of man's work? And I think the only answer that makes sense, especially with Hebrews 4 saying that the Sabbath has always been eschatological, that it's pointing forward to a final rest, then what you get a picture of is that Adam, you're going to work as I have worked. And when your work is done, you will rest in an eschatological sense. And so if Adam had been had been faithful to the work that was laid before him, he would have earned for his people, which would have been all of humanity, as our federal head, he would have earned that rest. But, as we all know, that did not happen. Adam failed to procure that rest for his posterity. So we look at Adam's failures in his offices, his failure as federal head. How does he fail as prophet? One, it's interesting to consider, I don't know how much weight I would hang on this, that Eve seems to just misunderstand who God is and what his commands are. Now, it may be that that's, and we probably would say that that's her, that's on her, at least to some degree. But we might also ask, is this a failure on Adam's part to communicate rightly? who God is and what he's done and what he's requiring. But even more explicitly, when we consider what a prophet is, a prophet is one who's the mouthpiece of God and shares this is who God is. This is what he requires. This is what he's offering. And when we consider Adam as the first one made in the image of God, he among, above all others should have been the one that if I want to know what God's like, I can look at Adam and I can get a good idea. That's what should have happened. But when Adam eats, he gives false teaching about who God is. He gives us a wrong image of who God is and thus fails in his role as prophet. What about Adam's role as priest? Well, he did not guard and keep the garden temple and allowed corruption to enter in and seduce his wife and through her seduce him. And so corruption entered all of humanity through his failure as a priest. And talking about his mediation, really striking to think about this this week, that Adam has an opportunity, as Eve eats, to be a mediator. What does he do? He is fearful of the wrath of God to come upon him and grabs his wife and shoves her in between him and the wrath of God. This woman that you gave me, So he takes the one he should have been mediating for, puts her in the way as a meat shield out of hope that he might be protected. And so utterly fails as a priestly mediator and shows exactly the opposite of what a priest should be. What about Adam's failure as king? Adam was to have dominion over creation, including the creeping things, serpents, and through the devil, this creeping thing, this creature that Adam was to have dominion over, takes dominion over him. So Adam forfeits his role as king. What does this result in? 
This results in that Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden temple, separated from the special presence and the life, the special presence of God and the life to be found there. Genesis 3, the last few verses of the chapter. Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree, the way to the tree of life. Because of his failure, they are cast out of the temple. They're cut off, in a sense, if we want to use Old Testament in imagery. And this will be important later. They're driven out east. And at the east, where the entrance to the garden is, there are two cherubim guarding the way to keep them from coming back into the special presence of God and keep them from having that life that they should have had. Yet, as Pastor Caleb preached last week, we know that this is not all that there is to the account. We know that before driving them out, there was a promise made. There's someone coming who's going to undo all this. There's someone coming who's going to restore what you've just lost. And the Lord goes through the rest of the Old Testament to show how we will be restored to the the status lost in Adam. How we will have communion restored with the Lord. And we will get that life that was cut off from us in losing access to the tree of life. We see prophets given throughout the entire Old Testament. And with Abraham, seeing the seed promises picked up on. You know, we've talked about multiple times now how the seed promise seems to be really clung to by those in the early chapters of Genesis. Eve naming his wife Cain, I have, or his, her son Cain. I've gotten a man, namely the Lord. With Noah's name being uh, a hope that maybe this one will give us rest from the toil of our hands. There's this clinging to the seed promise and they are continually disappointed. And then when Abraham comes on the scene, the Lord is almost picking, well, I think he is explicitly picking up on this, through your offspring, through your seed. I haven't forgotten my promise. The seed is still coming and it's coming through you. And through your offspring, all the world shall be blessed. We see that throughout the rest of the Old Covenant, the prophets come to reveal more of who God is, what He's like, and especially reminders of the promise. We see priests given and the tabernacle and the temple pointing in two directions. Pointing back to the garden and what was lost and pointing forward to how it might be won back. Now how does it point back? I'm not going to go to these texts. If you want to write them down, you can or listen. But 1 Kings 6 is a really great text to understand how it's looking back. Because the temple is being made, Solomon's temple is being made. We're given a lot of details. And again, like the genealogies, our eyes gloss over. Like, what does all this mean? And why is this important? But there's a lot of really fascinating details in 1 Kings 6. One of them we just don't even think about is the extravagant wealth and beauty represented in the temple. And we see this, we, we read about it in Ezekiel 28, in the garden, all those precious stones. We read about it in the Genesis 1-3 through account. There's precious gold there. There's these references to precious metals and this wealth that points to greater things than itself and is pointed at in the temple. 
Even better is the garden imagery in the temple. In verses 18, 29, 35, you see a command to make carvings of palm trees and flowers on the temple. Why? Because as you're going in, you're to be thinking back of what was lost and how you get a taste of that here in the temple. And I I love this. Just these little details. The temple and the tabernacle both face east. This is not an accident. This is not just, well, we got to lay down the tent facing some direction. I guess we'll face east. No, they were commanded to face east. Why? Because as Adam and Eve were driven from the garden, they were driven east. And so as you're going back into the tabernacle in the temple, you're going west. Which means you get this image that I'm entering the garden again to a degree. And we get this even more explicit when we consider the cherubim in the temple. We see on the, on the ark are two cherubim. In the Holy of Holies there are two cherubim. But most people never saw that. What most people saw as they were entering west into the temple, entering into a taste of what Eden provided, special presence of God and life, we see Exodus 26.31, And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. Why? It's not random. You're entering into the garden, but those cherubim are still there. And they're still guarding you from having unmediated communion with God and unmediated access to life. Those cherubim are still there, even after the garden's gone. And now they're just woven onto these, this veil that reminds you there's still separation. And that curse that came upon Adam is still in effect. The priests pointed to God's condescension in allowing one man once a year through much purification to get a taste of Eden and to represent the people of God there. See, kings. Kings are given to God's people to remind them of what was lost and what can be restored and what will be restored. God provided kings for wicked people that wanted to be ruled like the nations and was so gracious to provide several kings that the Bible does say are good. We're walking through... uh, Samuel and Kings, we're, ending, we're coming towards the end of 2 Kings. Judah has given several good kings. And if you read 2 Samuel 7, where the Davidic covenant is given, the king's personal righteousness is very important to the security of the nation. And sometimes, through God's grace, this worked to the benefit of the people, but most of the time it was to their detriment. Because most of these kings were really bad, and all of them were bad (laughs) to a degree. Um, Some of them fail precisely because they sought an office greater than what they had. They, as kings, sought to take the title of priest upon themselves. Now, we read about Joshua. He was a priest granted the office of king, which is different than what we see condemned is when the king gets too big for his britches is the idea that comes to mind, but <laughs> wants to take what's not given to him. The, perhaps the darkest example is Jeroboam, the first king of the northern kingdom, who absolutely, irreparably damages the northern kingdom of Israel. They over and over again can't get over the sins of Jeroboam. What does he do? He as king crafts his own state religion of which he not only created his own priesthood, but he himself offers sacrifices. 
he takes upon himself the title of priest. That not only can I rule over my people, but I can also mediate for my people. We see with King Uzziah, who is a good king. And if you've heard R.C. Sproul talk about uh, the holiness of God in Isaiah 6, he has a lot to say about the stability of the kingdom and the blessings that came through Uzziah's reign. But how does Uzziah's reign end? He reaches out to take the role of priest. 2 Chronicles 26.18, the priest had to withstand Uzziah, telling him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord. And he is struck with leprosy until the day he dies. And so, we get these images, these prophets, these priests, these kings, who are continuing to remind the people, you have been promised, there is a seed coming. And in this seed there will be restoration, but it has not come yet. And all the foibles of these prophets and these priests and these kings remind you the seed has not yet come. And so in their own way, all throughout the Old Testament, they're singing their own version of come thou long expected Jesus. Yearning and waiting for this seed promise to come to fulfillment. And when Jesus finally did come, He was greater than any expectation that they had. And so we come to reflect upon Christ, the true and better Adam. And I just want our eyes to look at this. Luke 3. We looked at this, was it last week? This time, time strange. You think something happened a week ago and it was a month ago. But Luke 3. And I shared this with Caleb when I was first reading about this. When you think about Adam being connected to Christ, you don't think of Luke 3 and 4. But again, at the end of the genealogy, Jesus, the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of. Verse 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So Adam is called explicitly here the son of God. You go on into Luke 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led, or driven, by the Spirit into the wilderness. Driven should bring to our minds how Adam and Eve were driven from the garden. And yet Christ was driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. Where Adam had the garden and all of its delights to strengthen him for resistance to the devil, Christ is driven into the wilderness to be weakened. To almost the lowest possible point of physical weakness. And then the devil comes to Christ like a predator looking for the most opportune time to strike. In verse uh, verse 3, the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And again, Adam, the Son of God, Christ, the Son of God, if you are the one, to undo the curse. If you are the one to restore what was lost, make the stone become bread. And we get this image again. Adam, at the time when he should have been most strong, especially if you take seriously, which I tend to, as Caleb brought up a few weeks ago, that would have been very early, possibly, the day or the day after that Adam was created, that the fall happened. He should have been most able to resist the devil. 
totally full of everything that the garden could have provided, and yet he failed. And the true and better Adam, at his weakest, after 40 days of fasting in a parched, dry land of wilderness, with no physical help to him, triumphs over the devil and defeats him, resists the temptation. And so we see Christ as the true prophet. Adam failed to represent God as the sinless Son of God made in His image when he fell into sin. But Colossians 1.15 says that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And I do think we can think of Adam here. Um, Adam was the firstborn of humanity. Adam is the image of the invisible God that was first created, but Christ all the more. And in a much greater way than Adam ever could. He is the firstborn of all creation. Upping the ante on what Adam was. And he is the image of the invisible God. We see in John 1.18, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. So we think of Adam should have represented the Father perfectly. He had every, everything he needed to do that. So that if... If he had not fallen, we could look to him and say, what is God like? Look at Adam. And we should have been able to see it. But in his fall, that that image is tarnished. And so now we come to Christ and we ask ourselves, what is God like? I can look to Christ and say, God is like Christ. And there's no fear of distortion. No fear of getting anything wrong when I'm looking to Christ to understand who God is. Hebrews 1, 1-2 through Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the perfect prophet. God spoke by all these different prophets before, and that was good and necessary. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by the true and perfect prophet. Christ is the true priest. And this is what we most often celebrate Understandably so, especially as uh, Reformed Protestants, Christ is the perfect priest who purifies His people so that we might have that special communion with God and the life that was in the garden is found in Him again. Where Adam, consider, takes his bride and shoves her in between him and the wrath of God. This woman that you gave me, don't blame me, it's her fault. What does Christ do as the perfect mediator? He takes his bride and pulls her out of the way and thrusts himself in the gap to take the full wrath of God upon himself so that it might be fulfilled what Isaiah wrote, by his stripes we are healed. Looking at Ephesians 5, which we often like to beat husbands with, but just consider what this says of Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And I want to pause here for a moment just to think about this. Adam and Eve created in perfection. Adam had a perfect bride and threw her in, in the gap to save himself. Christ does not have a perfect bride. Amen? He had a fallen bride covered in filthy rags polluted with sin. 
Instead of abandoning her, as he would have been right to do, as Adam was wrong to do, he pulls her out of the gap and stands and takes the full wrath of God upon himself that she might be redeemed. We consider Matthew 27, verse 51, and the priestly, the perfection of Christ's priestly role. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. And again, as you are entering westward into the tabernacle and the temple, and you're always stopped from where God's presence is most felt in the Holy of Holies by those two cherubim guarding the way, just like at the Garden of Eden, we understand the significance for temple worship. God rends the temple curtain torn in two. The Holy of Holies is accessible to all of us now. But if we consider this in light of Adam, then as we're entering into the temple, which reminds us of the garden, it's as if Christ is leading us past Adam as He's driven out. Christ has come in triumphing over the devil and He dismisses those cherubim and brings us back into the Garden of Eden again. They're sent off. Their role is done. We have access to unmediated communion with God again and to the life that is found there again. Christ is the true King. As the King of the human race, Adam led his people into sin. And as we talked about in 2 Samuel 7, the King's personal righteousness was essential to the stability of the kingdom. And for the most part, this was not good. Because those kings could not bear up to that task. And their personal sin led the people into sin. But Christ as our perfect King. He does not fail to lead us into righteousness. And we can rest with full assurance that if my standing depends on His personal righteousness, there's no better place I can be. My King will not fail. My King will not succumb into sin. My King will not buckle under temptation like all those kings of the Old Testament did. And I can trust Him totally and completely to be my federal head. And so we understand these things in relation to what Christ has done. We understand how Adam failed in these offices and damned the human race and how Christ succeeded in these offices and saved His people, redeemed His people. So we consider now, again, as we sing Come thou long expected Jesus. Not just remembering his first advent, but also yearning for that second advent. Considering how Christ still perfectly sits in these offices and still works in these offices for our benefit, how, should, how then should we live? In the present, understanding Christ's perfect performance in these offices means that he does everything that is needed for me to be in right relationship with the Lord. Think of another connection to the garden. Adam was told in a sense, you work and you will get rest. You work and you will earn rest for you and for all your posterity. In Christ, that rest has been earned. And now we can work with that rest already won for us. I think this is why we, we argue, among other reasons, that the Sabbath was transferred to the Lord's Day. That, that end of week Sabbath prefigured all this and pointed to work and then rest. Do this and live. But then the Lord's Day taking that new place at the beginning of the week, you have your rest. You have your salvation won. Now, because you live, go and do. And that changes everything. That changes everything. 
How does Christ in his office as prophet direct me now? I think of a text like 2 Peter 1, 3-4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us into his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Through this perfect prophet we have everything that we need for life and godliness. We're not waiting for more prophets. We don't need more prophets. We have Christ and his perfect revelation of who God is. We don't need a better picture of who God is. He perfectly reveals who the Father is to us. And in that sense, we can rest knowing that we don't need to seek for more words. We don't need to seek greater revelation. We have all that we need. And we can rest in what he's taught us and provided for us. How about Christ in his office as priest? For me now. I want to turn to Hebrews. We'll look at a few texts. Hebrews 7. Well, starting in verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And that, that's, that speaks for more than just us at the moment of justification. We now have a perfect high priest who intercedes for us. We have a, a holy, perfect priest who prays for us. And again, theme of rest. We should rest in that. I can't improve upon what Christ's work has done and continues to do. And so there's a rest that is one that we should have in Christ as a result of His continuing perfect priestly work. How does Christ in His office as King direct me now? Well, as saved people, we still are subjects of the King and owe Him obedience. As Israel and Judah depended again on their kings for covenant righteousness, so we depend on our King Jesus for our covenant righteousness. And again, unlike those kings, Jesus is able to bear up that burden and keep us in covenant fidelity by His own righteousness. And He will return to rescue His people from the presence of sin and the devil and bring perfect justice. Shared on clock note this week, Zephaniah 3 Verses 14 and 15. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. So there's much for us here in this present life. We need not fear evil for our King reigns and our perfect King reigns. We don't need to fear seeking justice for ourselves or vengeance because our perfect king will perfectly mete out vengeance. Much better than we ever could. Much better than I ever could. As we turn to the Lord's table, 
we come acknowledging our utter inability to adequately meet the demands of any of these offices on our own. Adam failed to meet them, and he was the best of us outside of Christ. But we come to the table praising God because the seed promise was fulfilled. And he came and gave us the supper to remember him and to remember what he's done. So, Pastor Caleb, if you want to come forward, and I'll pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son to do what could not be done in our own strength. And while we rightly deserved to be obliterated by your wrath, you were, you were a much better mediator than Adam. And you pulled us out of the path of God's wrath and placed yourself there to take it all, that there might be none remaining for us, your people. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.